0: going to turn to Nehemiah, we're going to read the section that everyone's been wanting to get to, the chapter that's just full of names. You know, you kind of have to focus, you know, as we read through this, and the thing, you know, that might help is, you might just listen for the things that stand out, because there's some of these that are different than the others, and so you might just think about that. Well, this one's different, and kind of memorable. So as we read through Nehemiah 3 uh, and we read about all these people you might just remember well these are real people but then also notice the ones that are different and Nehemiah felt like he wanted to needed to add a little note or he said it a little differently so let's just read through this Nehemiah 3 starting in verse 1 Then Elshib the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors, and they consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Haniel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar, the son of Emery, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors and its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz repaired, and next to them, Meshulam the son of Berkiah the son of Meshzabel repaired, and next to them Zadok the son of Banna repaired, and next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joiada the son of Passa, and Meshulam the son of Bessadia, repaired. The gate of Yesenah. And they laid its beams and set its doors and its bolts and its bars. And next to them repaired Melathea, the Gibeonite, and Jadun, the Marathonite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. And next to them Aziel, the son of Hariah, the goldsmith, repaired next to him Haniah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And next to them, Repaniah, the son of Hur, the ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. And next to them, Jedidiah, Jediah, the son of Har- Harumoth, Har- repaired, opposite his house. And next to them, hadish the son of Hashbeniah, repaired. Mal-Jediah, the son of Harim, the son of Hasab, the son of Pathob Moab, repaired another section of the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Hal, Hesh, the ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanan and the, and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors and its bolts and its bars and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Mal, Malchijah, the son of Rechab, the ruler of Beth-Hecherim, repaired the dungate, and he rebuilt and set its doors and its bolts and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kolhoza, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate, and he rebuilt and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Selah, the king's garden. As far as the stairs that go down from the city of David- after him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, the ruler of the district of Bethzer, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired. Rahum the son of Bani, next to Hashabiah, the ruler of half the district of Keliah, repaired for his district, and after them, their brothers repaired. Bavi, the son of Hinadad Hinn- ruler of the district of Kaliah, next to him Ezra, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite adjacent to the armory at the buttress. And after him Burach, the son of Zabi, another section, repaired another section from the buttress of the door to the house of Elishib, the high priest. After him Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door, from the house of Elishib, to the end of the house of Elishib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired the opposite, opposite their house. And after them, Azariah the son of Masiah, the son of Aniah, repaired next to his own house. After him, Ben Nui the son of Hinadad repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal the son of Uzai repaired next to the buttress in the tower, projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Badiah, the son of Parash, the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to the point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. And after him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate... And the priests repaired each one opposite his own house. And after them, Zadok, the son of Immer repaired opposite his own house. And after him, Shemaiah the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. And after him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalpha, repaired another section. And after him, Meshulam, Meshulam the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malch. Malchidja, one of the goldsmiths repaired as far as the house of the temple servants, and the merchants opposite the mustard gate, mustard gate, into the upper chamber of the corner, and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Thank you for putting up with me on that. So we just do our best, and yeah, I'm sure some of the, your kids could probably have read that better than me. Because um, I don't know if you this is another teaching story, not super important, but when we were when I was in school the philosophy of teaching, which changes like every ten years and goes back and forth from what you should do to now that's what you shouldn't do back to what you should do, was whole word reading. So we never learned phonics like how to sound it out. So I'll say something and Jess will say like, that doesn't have an L in it and I was like, Oh, I guess it doesn't have an L. I don't know where that came from. So thanks for putting up with me. Uh, with that. But so f- to start, I think I'll just kind of review where we're at. The reason we read all that is we're through the first two chapters of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king of Persia, which I was reading. Um, we're going through this short book of Nehemiah with joy, and uh, we were talking about Nehemiah this week, and we were talking about how Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king of Persia. And I realized wait, I said Babylon at least like two weeks in a row now. <laughs> so I need to correct that. Uh, like, last week, and then I think the week before that, too, I said he's the cupbearer to the king of Babylon, which is Daniel. Daniel was not the cupbearer, but he was kind of like the right-hand man to the king of Babylon. So if you heard that and you absorb that, like, forget that. It's Persia. And when I, well, um, keep moving on from there. Cupbearer to the king of Persia. Um, all those points, I think, still apply just take out the word Babylon, and you can even if you remember Babylon, remember Daniel was kind of the right-hand man to the king of Babylon, which it's amazing that God can use Nehemiah and Daniel, and they're great examples to us, in places we wouldn't expect. So Daniel is the cupbearer to the king of Persia, and he hears about Jerusalem, you know, has fallen into disrepair, and he is deeply moved. And even though he has been kind of far from God, in a sense, he even confesses that in his prayer, that he hasn't been following god he's been very corrupt he says both both not following what god said to do and doing things he knows are wrong corrupt things he feels for the people of jerusalem and so he prays he starts praying he prays for four months and he eventually gets an opportunity when the king looks at him and asks you know why are you sad it's kind of a strange little passage because it specifically says right after it says why is your face sad he says then i was uh um, I ha- it says right before that, I had not been sad in his presence. So either that means that he he wasn't trying to look sad or that that was the first time he really looked sad. It's unclear. Um, but anyways, he looks sad or maybe the king perceives he's sad even though he's trying to not look sad. One of those two happens and he's actually really afraid because the king could put him to death if he wanted to. And apparently there's some sort of rule that you're not supposed to be sad in the king's presence, which is kind of an interesting rule, apparently. Um, But anyways, he tells him what's bothering him, and the king actually offers uh, to send him supplies and to let him go. And as long as he comes back, apparently he was a pretty good worker, which we talked about, because they want him back, and they want to know how long he's going to be gone. So he leaves. It's a long journey. It's like a thousand miles. Um, They have to go around some things, like a desert. So it's a little bit less than a thousand on the map, but about a thousand where you have to stop. And then he comes in chapter two, finally, to Jerusalem, and he you know surveys what's going on, and he has faith in God, and he's saying to the people like, let's you know God promised, and let's rebuild, and here I am with letters from the king and supplies, and people are opposing him, and he's saying, no, God's going to help us, so he he uh, he's trusting the Lord there, and he's encouraging the people to help, and so then in chapter three. We get all the lists of the people, I'm not exhaustive, but it goes basically in a circle around Jerusalem. This section, this section, this section, this section, this section, all the way back to the first section, and um, that's what we get: the story of all the people who are helping. And it's important to remember if this was written by Ezra or Nehemiah, which there's definitely parts that are for, for you know Nehemiah's account. But remember, there were one book originally. Ezra-Nehemiah was basically one book. That This section is reminding us that Nehemiah, though he is a good example here and kind of a foreshadow of Christ like we talked about last week, he's not doing everything. right. There's all these other people involved that he is um, just a part of a, a team, a part of the people of God all working together. So what can we learn from this section? Well, we're going to kind of build off what we talked about last week, which was uh, how do we interpret the Old Testament? And I use... The um, three letters that they use in um, talking about COVID. P, P, E. How does this point to Christ? Is there a promise that Christ fulfills? And E, is there an example for us to follow or avoid? And we looked at all the verses on that. So we're going to kind of build on that again this week. What is this teaching us? Well, one of the things that this section is teaching us is that God works through people. Or you could say God works through means. That God doesn't always work Directly, you know, God could have said a word and rebuilt the walls with a word if he wanted to, but he didn't do that. He used people to do it. And the whole Bible, even from beginning to the end, is kind of interesting in that God doesn't do what we would expect a lot of times. I, if I was God, which is a good thing I'm not God, um, I would do a lot more direct miracles. Um, but the Bible, from beginning to end, is kind of a story of the God who works through people and means. Even in Genesis 1, it's kind of strange if you really think about Genesis 1. It's like the the section on God directly acting, right? He's saying, like, you know, let there be light. You know, he's directly acting. But even then, you see this God working through means. Like, he's not, he doesn't do everything himself. He says, like, he, remember when he creates the fish and the birds, he says, God blessed them and saying... Be, fill, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. So God directly creates, right? But he doesn't fill the world with with animals. He actually just says, like, I created some animals. Now you guys fill the, fill the world. You animals multiply. So he's using the means. He could have created a world full of animals. and Instead, he created a few animals and had them fill the world. He does the same thing with people, right? Remember what he says to Adam and Eve. He blessed them and said to them, Um, be fruitful and multiply, similar he could have created a ton of people, instead he created a few, two and he told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth fill the earth and subdue it so there's work, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth so he's creating people and then he's giving them something to do something God could have done himself, he's passing off onto others, uh, passing off onto people. He did the same thing with Adam, where he had him name the animals. So we see that God, who could act directly, likes to act through means. Either that's through individuals, through groups of people, and even in the way our world works, right? God could give us all food just like he gave manna, you know, uh, or he could give us all food just like Jesus multiplied the loaves, but he doesn't. What He, what he, God likes to do is have the son send you know light down and hit the plants and the plants grow and then they need water and air and then they produce food and then we have to you know move her out you know and do all the stuff that somebody in here probably knows how to make bread and all that stuff and then then it get then we get it right god lets us work a lot and he lets other things in his creation work so god likes to work through means and we see it all over the bible things god could do directly he lets other people do and his cre- creation do. It's pretty amazing, really. You know, the other thing that's amazing is the slowness of it. Like, this means it's slower, isn't it? Like, we would we would rather have God act directly and it be done like that. It's like, well, God, why don't you just put everything right like that, you know? Well, it's because God delights to work through means. And again, in Genesis 1, you see, like, God says it's good after every single day. He doesn't say, like, I created, you know the sea and the dry land, but it wasn't good because there weren't people yet, or it wasn't good because there was no plants yet. It, it, every single piece of the of the moving picture is good all along the way. And so you see that really here in Nehemiah 3. It's like God is looking at what's going on, this slow rebuilding of the wall that he could do a lot faster himself, but he's giving it over to people and letting people do the work. And He it's a delight to God to see his people working and being faithful and believing him. And... Here's the list of all of them, right? All these little people doing their little piece of the wall, individually contributing, and it's a delight to God. And that's the reason it's in here, is God wanted us to remember all these people and their faithfulness and how it took all of them. It wasn't just Nehemiah. Nehemiah, though he is you know, a picture of Christ, he's not the hero, right? He is helping, he's facilitating all these people working together. And so God, the first thing we can see about God is that he works through means. God delights to work through means. Think about Romans, one more thing on this, Romans 10, it's talking about the gospel. Like the gospel, how does it go out? God could speak to everyone in dreams and visions. He could, you know, make an audible voice, but he doesn't. He chooses to work through people. How then will they call on him who they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, you guys would take a long time doing it, so I'll do it myself. No? That's not what it says, right? He says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news, right? Something God could do himself. He's given over to us. And it's an honor to be able to share the gospel with people. It's amazing. And it is slower. But God is delighting in it. You see, you hear the delight there in this uh, passage. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. So we see this pattern that comes throughout the whole Bible. We see it here in this passage of God working through people, and he delights to do that. But second, another thing we see here from this passage is every member is responsible to build up the body. Every member is responsible to build up the body. And the reason I say body here is, again, we're talking about, if we think about last week, what's the promise that's being fulfilled, or how does this point to Christ? If you'll turn with me to Revelation 21 here, let's see what this, you know, this, the idea of Jerusalem, the city of God, where God, God dwells, what is that exactly um, pointing to? Revelation 21. We're going to read verses 9 and 10. So, this is the end. This is when everything's put back right. Um, 21, Revelation 21, 9 and 10. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So, what's that? What's the bride, the wife of the Lamb? And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So, just wanted to point out, what is this new Jerusalem? What is Jerusalem symbolizing in the future? Well, the bride, it says. "He'll show. I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. What's that? That's the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. That the bride, the New Jerusalem, the place where God dwells, is us, right? We're the people of God. We're the place where God dwells. In the New Testament, it's the people of God who have the Spirit of God within them, who are the you know the light to the world, um, the city on a hill, right? That can't be hidden, which is like Jerusalem on a hill. So that's us now, right? And so, even though this is specifically talking about a physical city, when it was uh, physical Israel, that it's foreshadowing us in the future, right? We're going to be the people of God. We're going to be the city of God except it's going to be spread out all over the world. Uh, the the new covenant. Physical to spiritual. So just like it took all of them to build up the, the walls here, to build up Jerusalem, it takes all of us to build up the new Jerusalem, the body. And you see this in you know 1 Corinthians, this same idea of Christ is the head and we're the body. We're all supposed to be supporting one another, building one another up, and we all need each other. You know, you, you can see from reading this section in Nehemiah chapter 3, there's people that do more and there's people that do less, right? And there's some people that circles back around and it says, and then this same group built more over here. And there's some people that just built right what's right in front of their house, and there's some people that built a section, finished it, and went to another section. And finish that too. So, but they needed all of them. And it's the same here in the church in the New Testament. That we're not building a city in the physical sense. We're building a spiritual city. And we need each other. If you want to turn one more time. Let's read some from that section in 1 Corinthians 12. It really fits well with this section here in Nehemiah. Let's read 12 through 12, 12 through 21. I'm going to read just a, one, two verses here before we jump into 12. To each is given, this is a little bit earlier on, the manifest manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For just as the body is one and many, and has many members, and all the members are one body, though though many are one body, so it is with Christ. So that's... Jump in right here in verse 12. Um, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. So let's stop right there. So that—that's the New Testament version of Nehemiah three, right? Some people did more. Some people did different things. Some people—some um, people built the doors. Some people built right in front of the house. Some people built a lot. Some people built a little. Some people um, had more honor, right? You see that the person who is the goldsmith probably has more honor than the guy who said, "Hey, I built the dung gate," right? Um, or who lives, who lives right next to the dung gate. That's probably not the best part of the city. But there he is, and he's doing his part, which is essential. And we actually do see some people who say, I'm not going to help. I'm not going to be a part of this. And we see that in verse 5 of Nehemiah 3. If you're, sorry, jumping around. This will probably be the last time I jump around here. Nehemiah three five, it says, Next to them, the Techoites... Repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. That's scary. That's kind of a scary section. Think about that. It's like you're rebuilding. It's like, yeah, I'm not going to stoop to serve. Um, that's that's kind of a scary warning here. How's that? It's definitely an example of something we shouldn't do, right? Like, I'm not going to stoop to serve here. Is that what's the NAS say there? Say the exact same word for word. Their nobles did not support the work of their masters. Uh, Work of their masters. Well, the word Lord there could be taken um, two ways. It could be taken to be God, talking about God, or just like in the New Testament, um, they call Jesus Lord, and sometimes they're talking about Lord like God, but sometimes they're talking about like Master, uh, like Sir, type of like an honorific. So the ESV takes it as Lord. And meaning God, and the commentaries I read also said that they took it that way. Apparently, the NAS translators didn't, but let's let's just take it that way because even if they're refusing to serve their masters earthly, we know that in the end it ultimately comes back to they didn't want to rebuild the city of God, and they didn't want to be a part. And so, whether it's you know one step removed or it's Immediate, um, The nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. So we don't want to be like that. We don't want to say, like, ah, the body either doesn't need me or I'm not going to work here. Like, I'm going to leave that for other people, which is what they did. They left it for somebody else to do. And we don't want to be like that. Like, we need everybody here using their gifts. And we've talked about this before. That's one of the reasons we're doing small groups is because for us to be a healthy body, you know, me coming up here every week and saying, you know you know some helpful things from the scriptures hopefully each week isn't enough like that's not we can't be healthy like that if that's all we we've got then we're not going to be healthy we're going to be unhealthy we need each other to build one another up and you know we pray for you guys we're regularly praying for you guys but that's not going to be enough we try and regularly reach out that's not going to be enough we you need friends you need people close to you that you get together with week to week you need your family you need um Every different part. Like, I have an emphasis. Like, I have a specific way that I grew up, and, and that leads me to say things in a certain way because it's helpful to me and the background I'm coming out of. But there's people that can say something to you so much better where you're at if maybe they're growing up in a different background and they, they have a background close to you and they say it in just the way that's helpful to you. Like, you, we need everybody. That's why we need small groups, that's why we need people knowing what's going on in your life and not just basically spectators, right? It's not like the Chiefs, who are going to play today, and basically everyone thinks they just need Mahomes. Like, they just need this, everybody, let's all go watch this one guy do his great thing, and and that's all we need, really. Um, and we kind of need an offensive line, but we almost won without that, you know, in the Super Bowl still. If, Anyways, that's not what the church is, right? It's not just one great guy, it's like, and you know, we need, we need everybody, right? It's not just the elders. And we need you. Like, right? we really, really, really need you in a lot of ways. Like, even just me saying Babylon, like, two weeks in a row shows, like, literally a three-year-old doing a Bible study, basically we realized like, oh, wow, I've been saying the wrong thing. <laughs> right? Like, little, like, if your little kid had their kid's Bible open last week, they could have come up to me and said, hey, you said Babylon, but it's actually Persia. And I would be like, oh, wow, yep, yeah, you're right. You're right. I said the wrong thing. Like, we need each other. And that's actually kind of a good illustration because it's like, as parents, don't you learn, like, a lot about God from trying to explain things to your kids? It's like, they're saying, like, well, you know, um, you know, there's a lot of questions they ask that are, seem obvious, but it's like, well, what is sin? It's like, man, I want to explain sin in a way that's helpful to a three-year-old, and they can apply it to their life. And I understand it better afterwards, like, thinking through it, you know? And even the series we just came through before this, The Basics, it's like basically that all came out from me trying to explain the basics to my three-year-old and thinking, ah, this is kind of helpful. Maybe this will help somebody else, you know. Sin is loving the darkness more than the light. Sin is saying to God, I don't want you to reign over me. Sin is um, like an animal crouching at the door, ready to devour you. It's like, that helps me. It helps me. But I wouldn't have known that unless I had another piece of the hopefully one day body to, I, I'm trying to disciple, I'm trying to explain, I'm trying to shepherd each day. And so we need everyone. We need older Christians, we need younger Christians, we need people who have this emphasis and that emphasis, we need people that are gifted in this area and that area. And we need people, you know, that are stay at home moms and people that work and all, all in between. We need everybody to build one another up. And so I'm just wanting to encourage you, like, right now. If this church was the wall, like, are you putting in, or do you believe one of these lies? Like, uh, it doesn't matter if I if I don't encourage anyone. It doesn't matter if I don't show up. It doesn't matter if you know I you know I, I just kind of coast. It doesn't matter. That's not true. People in this body need you, and you need them both. You don't want to follow. You know this passage that we looked at in First Corinthians 12. It kind of has two errors. One is saying like thinking you're great and you don't need anyone else. That's not true. But the other is thinking you're nothing and no one needs you. That's not true either. We don't want to think either one of those. You are needed. You're doing something really important. God put you where you are to do something important. And um, we need you. Are you pouring in? Are you encouraging? Are you praying? It's important. Whether you're a priest or a goldsmith, or there's kind of an interesting thing here. Only place in the Bible that I think there's women with swords here, which is kind of interesting. So look at 312. This is just kind of, well, in one way, it's like for my daughter who runs around with a sword all the time, you know, it's like protecting, you know, it's like, well, there, this looks like there's ladies with swords right here in Nehemiah 3. Next, next this is 312. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh the ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. Well, later on it says all the builders had a sword strapped to their side. So all means the daughters, they're building, they probably had a, probably build in there with a sword, which is pretty awesome. It's like, yep, that's kind of cool. Like, I don't, I mean, telling your daughters, like, come on, help me build the wall. That's pretty bold. And then when they say, like, everybody needs a sword, you're like, well, I guess you got to take a sword. It's like, kind of cool. But anyways, another point. It's like, here's these ladies building the wall. When you, This is the place you would least expect to find ladies coming in and playing a part. It's like, they're literally building the wall while they're holding swords because people are about to attack. And then here's these ladies, you know. It's like this guy's like, well, my daughters, you guys, they must have been, I don't know, big daughters or strong daughters. <laughs> I mean, brave daughters, that's for sure. I mean, when they say, like, you can help us build, but, like, only do it with one hand because they could come at any moment. It's like, that's scary. Uh, well good for them all different types of people building they needed every single one of them and in a way it's kind of actually a great spiritual application because you know like stay at home moms it's like you are kind of fighting a battle like you got a sword like you're fighting a spiritual battle you're really building up Jerusalem you know uh, with pouring into the kids and um, praise the Lord for you Uh, because I I would I think I would go crazy with a lot of the um, stuff stay at home moms have to do so kudos to you Okay, let's keep going. I'm, I took too long probably on that one. So not only does God like to work through people, every member is responsible to build up the body. And then this is really similar to what I just basically said. I'm just kind of repeating. I kind of got ahead of myself. Your faithfulness makes a difference. So these, each one of these people made a difference. Like we're just saying, like, don't think that you are not going to matter if I don't come or it's not going to matter if I don't try and encourage. It's not going to matter. That's not true. We need you. Look at this verse here. Uh, I'm going to read this verse to you from Acts 13. It's about David. It says this, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. So David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation. Think about that. That's true for David, but it's true for you too. Like God put each one of us, like we talked about last week, he lauded the times and boundaries of our dwelling place, like where we're going to be. God has a purpose for you where you are. Like, there's a purpose. It could say your name there. After you serve the purpose of God in your own generation, you're going to fall asleep. Like, that's going to happen. But what that means is you've got a purpose now. Like, your faithfulness matters now. You're going to make a difference in people's lives. Things you do and say, an example, things you don't say, things that people see you do, ways you just are there for people. All of it, your work your family, every single part of your life, it matters. You have a purpose or you wouldn't be here. God doesn't, there's, God doesn't have wasted space. God put you here for a reason. And whatever you, God's given you to do, do it because it, it matters. And don't give up. I mean, think about how hard and how easy it would have been to give up for these people, right? It's like all the opposition, we're not there yet, but this next couple chapters is just opposition after opposition after opposition, and they all built each one none of them got scared and like left they're all think about it if half of them or even a third of them got scared and left boy that would have been really detrimental to the work but they all persevere it's like one of the things that trials do for us is keep us build in us um, stick to it stick to itness right I think I, I think I heard somebody else say that. I can't remember. I wish I could tell you so that they could get credit, but think about James, okay, I'm gonna read you this verse from James. Count it all joy, joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Your faithfulness matters. You may be doing something and you feel like giving up. Well, you know what? That verse basically says that's why the trial's there, because you've got this. God's working what He's working out in you is this kind of, I feel like I'm I feel like it's hard, so I'm gonna give up. He's, say, he's saying, like, I'm gonna get that out of you, that attitude of it's hard, so I'm gonna give up, and I'm gonna build in you steadfastness. Like it's hard, but I'm gonna stick with it. That's what's it's producing. So when you're going through something difficult, you're trying to be faithful, and there's all this opposition, you feel like, man, I just feel like giving up. Well, it specifically says there in James, what is this testing? What is it doing? What's the purpose? It's building up steadfastness. It's producing, it's producing steadfastness. It's getting rid of this feeling like, ah, I'm just going to give up. And your faithfulness makes a difference. Don't give up. Think about all, there's so many verses in the, in the New Testament where this is the danger. It's like, the danger is just don't give up. There are so many. I'll just read you a few. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. That's from Galatians 6. I'm just trying to encourage you that God's got you here for a purpose. God wants to use people. God wants to use all types of people. God's got you here for a purpose. We all need you, and you need us too. Your faithfulness makes a difference. Don't give up even when it gets hard. Because what God's saying is like, it's not, God's not saying, I've got a purpose for you and everything is going to be real easy. He's saying, I've got a purpose for you and it's going to be difficult. But don't give up. Your faithfulness makes a difference. Stick with it even when it gets hard. Whatever that means for you. However it is, you know, we've got people with lots of different types of jobs. We've got people with lots of different types of families and lots of different stages of life. There's temptations to give up and to feel like I'm not making a difference. You know, my faithfulness doesn't matter and people don't need me all the time. It's not true. Your faithfulness does make a difference. We do need you and God does want to use you. And then let's, I want to finish with this. This It's kind of a cool thing. Last point I want to make is that you can be included in the people of God if you're willing. If you're willing. You can be included in this work of God and the people of God in Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. You can be included. If you want to be. Now, there's kind of a sneaky little section in here where Gentiles get snuck in here, which is kind of awesome. Because, again, it's like a great picture of the New Jerusalem. It's like, well, they're, they're literally building Jerusalem and there's some Gentiles doing it. It's kind of amazing. So I'll show you where that is. It's the Gibeonites, which maybe I should just read to you. Well, maybe I'll make you turn there. Just Okay, last, this is really the last time. Turn to Joshua 9. And let's see who the Gibeonites are. You probably remember the Gibeonites. So they're coming into the land and these Gibeonites here like God is giving them the land and I'm scared like that he's going they're going to destroy us. So let's let's put on these old clothes and let's look like we're from far away and pretend that we can make a covenant with them that we're not a people of the land when we actually are. So that's what's going on here. Joshua 9, starting in verse 15. And Joshua made peace with them, the Gibeonites, and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. And at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day, and their cities were Gibeon, Chephirah, Beeroth, and Kirath Jirim. but the people of Israel—that's actually really important. Those three in order are actually really important um, because this is one of the hints of that this is um, Gentiles later on in Nehemiah when he's listing the people that came back from uh, when Ezra came back. He has those cities and he has them in that order all together, and he groups them together, which is really interesting. S- same exact grouping there. Um, those three, it says Gibeon, and then there's another city, and then it says those three. Uh, Okay, verse 18. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leader of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders, and all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. And Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us? Saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us. Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of God. Which sounds like a pretty good curse, actually. You're just going to be a servant for God? Like, that's kind of great. Um... And they answered, because it was told to to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants in the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand, whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So they actually have a really good attitude there. They fear God, and then they're basically humble, like, yeah, we'll be servants, like, whatever seems good to you. Yeah, we'll do it. And then, lo and behold, they're in the people of God for, for, for a long time. They come back up again. We know that they're still around because, well, again, they come up in Samuel. And remember when Saul tries to kill the Gibeonites, and he does kill a bunch of them, and then God's wrath comes on him because he's like, you weren't supposed to kill the Gibeonites. You promised not to. So they stuck around for a long time within the people of God. And then here, in this section, let's look at the specific section that talks about the Gibeonites. is in 7. And this is interesting because it says Gibeon twice. It says Gibeonite and then this is one of the things that if you look, this is different. It um, it says Gibeon and Gibeonite. So it seems pretty safe to say since they lived in Gibeon and uh, Gibeonite could mean people that live in Gibeon but um, it seems likely that since they lived there that one Gentile is still there. And next to them repaired Melathiah the Gibeonite and Jaden the Mer- Merothanite and the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah. So, we see these Gibeonites, this, definitely the city, but then it's mentioned twice. Like, there's this guy that's a Gibeonite and then there's the men of Gibeon. So, I don't know which one's which, which one's the Gentile, but since they mention it twice, kind of separately, it seems like they're talking about two different things. They don't just say they're all Gibeonites. It says, men that live in Gibeon and then this guy the Gibeonite, separately. So, um, anyways, it seems very likely that we've got Gentiles here, and there's hints later on in Nehemiah where it talks about the rest of the people. And basically, he gives this promise: anybody that wants to enter in um, to this covenant, when they when they promise that they're going to follow the Lord, it's it has um, a lot of alls in there. Basically, it's open to anyone, all who have knowledge and understanding of who, of who God is, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands. Like basically anybody. And they even specifically talk about people who don't know their lineage. Later on, they don't know; they can't prove that they're actually Jewish, um, so they can't serve in the temple. But they're still allowed to be included in the people of God. So that happens later on. But so let's just contrast this with the Gibeonites here, with how they acted back in the old, you know, Joshua, and then here. But also with the people that we just read about at the end of chapter two. There's these Ammonites, this guy that's an Ammonite, and then there's this Arab guy. And they jeered and despised the work and basically opposed it. So it's like you've got these two groups with two different attitudes. One is like, yeah, I don't want to be a part of that. And Nehemiah specifically says to him at the end of chapter 2, you don't have any part in this. But then when we list, when we go through the list here, there's these guys that, one, don't know their lineage. That's later on. And then also these Gibeonites, which we know the Gibeonites were um, Gentiles. They're allowed to be a part. They have a totally different attitude. They're like... They're they're willing to separate themselves to follow the law of God, obviously, and they're willing to be servants, and then they are. So, how does that relate to us? Well, if you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, it's open to you. Like you can be a part of it. It's remember what Jesus said in Luke, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have I gathered you together? as a hen gathers her brood on her wings, but you were not willing. If you want to be a part of the people of God, if you want to have your sins forgiven, if you want to serve God, which all go together, right? We have our sins forgiven, we're washed by the blood of Christ, and then out of an overflow of gratitude for what he's done, and thankfulness, and imitation of him, then we serve God. But if you want to be included in that, in the work of building up Jerusalem, and the people of God, by being adopted by God, through the blood of God. It's open to you. You know, there's not going to be anybody on judgment day who says to God, I was willing, but you wouldn't let me. It's going to be the opposite. God's going to say, I was willing, but you weren't. And that's what Jesus said there in, in Luke. I would have gathered you, but you were not willing. Anyone who wants to come, who's willing to humble themselves before God, to become a servant like the Gibeonites, to fear God, to humble themselves, to lean on him, they're able. Like, you can be a part of it. If you, you know, are a kid, you're four, and you want to follow Jesus, like, you can do it. You can have your sins washed. You want to trust Jesus, trust him with all your sins, and then trust him every day forward. You know, this, another thing that we want to talk about as we go through this is faith. It's like, we want to have faith in God, right? And that's what, the whole basis of why they're doing all this is, God's promise, God's steadfast love. He said he was going to build up the people, so we trust him. But we don't just trust him once and then go on living our life. We trust him for once, for all our sins, and then we trust him the next day and 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 the next day all the way through to the end of our life. Every day we're trusting God. We're having faith in God. And that's what they did here. This is a list of people who trusted God, built up Jerusalem, and it wasn't done in a day. It wasn't this... You know, we're going to have this big rally, and then it fizzles out. It's We're trusting God, and we're working, and we're working, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And I'm scared, but I'm going to keep going the next day, and I'm going to trust God the next day until it's done. And that's the way we live our Christian life, isn't it? It's like we're all doing our part where we are, trusting God today, and the next day, and the next day, all the way to the end. So, wherever you're at, however old you are, we need you. And... We're asking for you to, one, trust God. We need you to trust God to be a part of it, to be willing to humble yourself before him and obey him, but then serve him and continue to trust him every day. So why don't we pray together? Thank you for this passage, Lord, and I just pray you'd help me um, to live it out in my own life. I pray you'd help everyone here we want to honor you and live for you and trust you every day we want to fulfill the purpose you have for us and we need help even just believing that every day that in everything you have for us there's a purpose and a plan and it's for our good even the hard things so we just look to you i pray you'd help us i pray you'd help the stay-at-home moms i pray you'd help the kids i pray you'd help the dads going want to work i pray you'd help single people i pray you'd help people with um all different types of jobs boring jobs Hard jobs, I just pray you'd help them pray you'd help us as parents pray you'd help us as pastors and we just need you we need your spirit we we do want to be a part of a body that encourages and builds up one another, and we need every single member working and um, exercising their gifts and trusting you with where you've put them so We need you, Spirit, uh, to do that in each one of our hearts each and every day. So we're asking for help. We can't do it on our own. We need you. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.